Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. NPR reporter Kirk Siegler recently visited UPR while in Logan working on a story for the NPR elections desk. And he sat down with me for a wide-ranging conversation, including a discussion of presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump's Mormon problem, the potential designation of a Bears Ears National Monument, Siegler's interview with Cliven Bundy and reporting on the standoff at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, how Siegler got started at NPR and his life as a reporter for NPR's National Desk, and parallels between Australia and the American West. So I'd like to uh, maybe start with a little bit of your biography. You grew up in Montana? I did. I grew up uh, in western Montana um, in the 1980s and uh, in pretty interesting place uh, and probably an interesting time, too, that I think frames kind of my interest in what I'm reporting on today a lot around the West. But it was a time when there was a pretty big transition going on, at least in western Montana, transitioning away from timber-based economies into other economies. And it was actually a pretty economically depressed time. Mm. Uh, In Missoula, Montana, which once had at least three timber mills right in the town and several others in the outskirts, and uh, all of them have now shut down. Wow. Um, but it's a, it was certainly an interesting place to grow up in, and it was a college town, so there was a lot of there were a lot of transplants and a lot of mm-hmm. different perspectives, but I think that kind of is emblematic of a lot of the West um, today. You stayed in the West for, for uh, university? You went to University of Colorado? Correct. Yeah, yeah. University of Colorado, Boulder. So you, you, you kind of... Um been stewed, if I could put it that way, in, in a lot of the Western issues, as you said, growing up, and then I'm sure, and then you got into reporting, both in, in uh, I guess, back in Missoula, and then, then uh, right. Colorado? Right, um, probably by accident a little bit. Um, I had always been interested in radio and had been interested in sports broadcasting, and when I was in high school, my uh, high school football team, I... You can't see me on the radio, but I did not play high school football. Uh, but the the school's program was really good, good enough that the local one of the local AM talk stations would broadcast all their games live, and uh, they hired me basically to be the sideline reporter, and I'd get to run the halftime show. Uh, so I was always really interested in radio and particular sports broadcasting. Um, uh, after college, though, I went to um, did a bunch of traveling around the world. Lived in Australia for a little bit. Arrived back as as any good um, recent college graduate would do. I arrived back and moved back in with my parents, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, went into the local NPR affiliate in uh, Missoula, Montana, and said, "Hey, I have a, a degree in journalism. Is there anything I can do?" And that eventually turned into a, a full time job after about a year covering the Montana State House. Uh, for Montana Public Radio. You were a young State House bureau chief, I think, right? Or right. Uh, so maybe I, Bureau of One, it, it, I, I could guess? Or? Correct. A very glamorous uh, bureau in the basement of the state capitol right. in right. a closet, literally mm-hmm. a closet. Uh, but it was where I cut my teeth as a reporter. Uh, obviously, I'm still learning uh, to this day, but I learned so much in that initial job being around a bunch of veteran State House reporters. And there's no better way, I think, in my mind to learn the nuts and bolts of reporting than to spend some time in a state legislature, uh, and in particular, a state capital uh, where the news sort of falls on falls in your lap a lot. Um, that is most of the political news and a lot of the state news. Um, so I did a lot of uh, reporting on statewide issues and state politics up there in Montana for two years before moving on. Went to Colorado 
I guess it did a lot of reporting uh, there on, I guess, the, the typical issues of the West, right? Right. Um, you know, uh, as a lot of your listeners will tell, for sure know, um, a lot of the issues in both Utah and Colorado in particular, I think, are pretty similar. Water, wildfires, land issues, growth. Um, and and I think in, in, like, a lot of the West, we tend to think of... Um, a lot of the Western issues as being more rural, um, and for sure they are public lands issues, land use issues. But in Colorado and Utah, there uh, in particular, these places are booming, and these places are becoming more and more urban uh, and urbanized. And many of the issues that are uh, that many communities are dealing with in Denver are the same, or in Salt Lake City, or Logue here in Logan are the same as people are dealing with in cities across the country. So. Um, it's really a mix of issues. Uh, I do tend to gravitate a little bit more toward the rural issues um, of interest uh, and the sort of urban-rural divide, even if there is such a thing. But sort of parsing that for a national audience is always interesting to me. Right. So before we get into some of the issues that you report on, um, I, I know, you know, say reporters here at uh, UPR, people who are interested in, in this kind of life, wonder how you make it, to use a baseball term, how do you make it to the show? How do you... How do, you, how do you go from reporting Colorado to, you know, does NPR call you up and say we want you, or do you start reporting periodically for NPR? What, how does that happen? Uh, actually, kind of a mix. Um, I was in a position in Colorado where there happened to be, uh, uh, when I first moved back to Colorado from after going to college there, uh, I moved to a funky, off-the-beat, you know, mining town called Aspen. <laughs> <laughs> I say glibly. But mm. there happened to be a uh, energy boom that was going on right at the same time, and I think it's in the same general formation as the Uinta Basin in northeast Utah, western Colorado. Colorado. At that time in 2006, 2007, uh, there was a huge natural gas boom. Uh, and so there were a lot of issues there that were playing out that uh, were of national interest. So I was able to pitch stories and work, start working for the network. Then uh, then I moved down to Denver, where as there's probably by nature because there's more people, there are more national stories. But I'd say I probably cut my teeth mostly for the national network. It happened to coincide. Uh, my move to Denver happened to coincide with a, a time where there were uh, just huge so-called catastrophic wildfires that were that the West hadn't seen. The West had seen them before, but because there were so many people moving into forests and, and places that they hadn't before, uh, in some years we hadn't seen these big wildfires that, that, that ignited in um, Boulder, Colorado, Colorado Springs, um, just destroying a lot of uh, uh, property and and claiming some lives, unfortunately. And that sort of coincided with the time when NPR began to rely very heavily, more heavily on their member station reporters. Um, so I'd say, I guess, in, in, in answer to your question, um, for reporters coming up or in the system, you know, you... Uh, you can kind of cut your teeth covering breaking news and you uh, have to be willing to drop everything and go. You have to break all your plans and and go up. But as, as reporters, we're hungry for the story, right? So that's not usually a tough sell for most of us in the mm -hmm. journalism field, uh, most of us who are left anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, it happened to coincide with the time where there was a lot of national breaking news. And, and NPR is very um, committed to breaking news, but we're also committed to... Uh, 
reporting the news right and comprehensively, uh, and also getting uh, help from all of our member station partners around the country who can who really know what's going on in, in communities, um, whereas now I'm a national reporter, I have to kind of parachute into a lot of places around the West mm-hmm. and have a, you know, a day or so to really get a sense for what the, what the main issues are. Right. You mentioned those of us left, and we, we understand that you know, newspapers have taken a big hit. Mm-hmm. Where, uh, where's radio, and, and where, where do you think radio is going in I think news? I'm actually very optimistic. I think we're we're doing well. Um, I know NPR uh, is is in a you know pretty strong financial state right now, and we rely very heavily. I don't need to tell you we have a different mm-hmm. model than perhaps the newspapers did, um, or not perhaps than the newspapers did in terms of where we get our funding. But I think we're in a good position. Um, I know that I have. You know, I never take for granted that I have the ability and the financial backing to travel around the West and, for that matter, the United States to get into communities like Logan and states like Utah uh, and tell the stories and get the information out. Um, and, you know, we we are very that – that said, we are very nimble about how we spend our money and we don't just show up and report all these stories. But we do – we are in a situation where we are fortunately committed to being able to go out into the communities and still tell these stories. And I think, you know, there is so much clutter and so much information out there that this is this is so important that we do this now. And I think, you know, people have always been talking about radio uh, going away and yet it never does. Um it may be that in the future we get our quote unquote radio, and many of us already are uh, here on our smartphones. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the overall journalistic integrity of NPR will, you know, continue to be uh, a, a staple, and I think will continue to be thriving. Uh, even in this kind of crowded media landscape. So I hope that's some reassurance. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. Yeah, I'm interested in behind the scenes. So I guess some stories you'd be assigned, you'd be working on for a while. Others, you'd get a call. Hey, shooting in Orlando, get, get on a plane. Is that sure? Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting life. You're you'll always be working on you know a few things. You'll have a couple stories. I cover a lot of West. You know, I cover the West. Uh, so I've always got a few. Uh, stories that I'm working on that are bigger features. And then um, being uh, based in Los Angeles on the West Coast, uh, we're up really early and suddenly we'll just be assigned something for that day's All Things Considered Mm. and uh, have to scramble to get some interviews done and have the story filed by 1230 or one o'clock Pacific time. So that's a bit of a a stress. Um, And then in other, as you mentioned, uh, Orlando is an example. When there's a huge, big, important breaking news story nationally, uh, we pretty much, I will drop everything and um, go to that event as part of a team of reporters who uh, land on the ground and uh, cover the story for the network and in many cases in partnership with the local station. Um, but it is an interesting life. It's a fun life. You do get used to uh, arriving at work uh, just like any other normal day. And then suddenly an hour later, you're at LAX traveling to Denver or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I wouldn't have it any other way because it makes things very interesting. But I do have a you know a, a list of um, more featurey type stories like why I'm here in Utah, for example, on this latest trip that don't have to be done right away uh, Mm -hmm. that are airing, you know, in the next week or so that we're working on. And then we're always ready to drop uh, when needed and uh, get to the nearest airport. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's interesting. You're 
you're living in Pacific time, but you're sort of working on Eastern East Coast time, time. right? Yeah. East Coast time, right? Yeah. Uh, now That's, we are we are uh, 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 working to change that. We are working to um, better our coverage of the country uh, and not be um, as DC or East Coast centric. I know that's a con- concern uh, that's talked about internally in NPR, and it's a criticism that NPR has faced a lot. We are working, we are building up our presence here in the West. Uh, we have a couple of show hosts based here in the West for All Things Considered, Morning Edition, and also a newscaster who your listeners may have heard signing off and introducing himself from Culver City, California, which is a burg in the middle of Los Angeles. Um, so there's a real push to uh, move the some of the network's resources out west to better cover the country and to better reflect, you know, quite frankly, by the time uh, we are, you know, uh, getting in our cars to drive home on the west coast or here in the mountain west, you know, a lot of people are uh, finishing up dinner on the east coast. So we're a big country and we're trying to better reflect our listeners' needs by having much more of a presence here in the West, Mm -hmm. uh, in particular later in the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know there's always a complaint, especially in California, you know, calling elections. You know, Mm -hmm. our voters haven't voted yet, you know, (laughs) haven't finished voting. It's uh, it's, it's the tyranny of the Eastern time zone. Right. I don't know how much we can talk about what you're working on here in Utah. I'm I'm actually here... uh, at the moment, on assignment for the politics desk, I work for the national affairs desk. Um, but we obviously do uh, some joint reporting, and um, obviously many national affairs do work into politics. So I'm here uh, kind of trying to parse a headline and try to get an answer to a question of whether Utah, uh, conservative deep red Utah, is actually in play in the presidential election um, as a result of who the presumptive nominees are, actually for both parties, but in particular, uh, the focus here is on the presumptive nominee, Donald Trump. So I'm spending a bit of time in Utah trying to uh, get a sense for how the candidate is viewed by the state's influential LDS community uh, and in and different conservative circles and whether or not, uh, you know, I think there does tend to be a bit of a we're in this world of Twitter headlines and fast and, you know, there's a couple of polls and everyone jumps on a poll. And there was a poll that came out, as I know your listeners are probably aware of, that showed that uh, Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump in Utah are kind of in a neck and neck uh, heat or in neck and neck uh, race. Uh, there's also a huge number of undecideds. And um, I don't know how much we really should look at polls too closely to uh, determine the accuracy of what the population is feeling. But I'm here to sort of get a sense for what um, Utahns are saying, in particular in the LDS community, about uh, the Republican nominee for this trip. I'm also doing a bit of sniffing around on some um, future uh, public lands stories. I've been covering a lot of lands issues in the West and the the militias and the uh, now jailed ranchers, Clavin Bundy and his sons and some of their followers. Uh, I was in Utah recently reporting a story about um, where that movement sits, in particular in southern Utah. Uh, um, I'm also planning, hopefully, I don't know if I'll be able to get it uh, get to it on this trip or not, but two other stories that are of particular interest to me in Utah uh, right now are the in relation to the um, public lands issue is the proposed Bears Ears National Monument. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand the Interior Secretary may 
be here in the state at some point very soon to tour that. It may be an indicator that the administration uh, is listening to the tribal groups who are, you know, pressuring uh, the president to to federally protect that corner of southeastern that corner of southeastern Utah. Uh, I'm also interested in uh, the state's um, uh, push to get coal exported out of the Oakland, mm-hmm. uh, the port of Oakland in California. And uh, there was a, a setback on that recently with the uh, city of Oakland uh, nixing the terminal, but the amount of public money in Utah that's gone to supporting its coal industry. And I'm interested in how that's playing out in some of the more rural uh, coal-dependent towns in, in the state. So mm-hmm. in answer to your question, most immediately, it's for uh, a politics story. But then as you know, we were talking before I came in, uh, it seems like these days almost anything's a politics story. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, certainly yeah. true. Certainly true. And I find Utah, uh, as an aside, I find Utah to be particularly interesting, especially on a national level. Uh, I think there's always so much focus uh, from the national uh, political reporters in the West. It seems like we often just hear about Colorado and Nevada, right? Uh, because they're the the so-called swing states in the Intermountain West. Um, but to have a, an opportunity to come to uh, Utah and, and sort of uh, show how uh, politics is certainly not black and white and everybody just falls into the red state, blue state camp, uh, to get an opportunity to spend some time here to report on politics is certainly uh, a fun chance that I leapt at. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're spending the hour with NPR reporter Kirk Siegler. He recently visited Utah Public Radio Studios while he was in Logan reporting a story for NPR. Uh, still to come, we're going to uh, get into public lands issues, including potential designation of Bears Ears National Monument. I'll also talk about Kirk Siegler's interview from 2014 with Cliven Bundy. Much else. Hope you'll stay tuned. More with NPR's Kirk Siegler follows the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. One of the best skills a leader can develop is the ability to ask questions. Not questions with an implied solution, but neutral, non-judgmental questions that show respect for employee commitment. For example, why is that important? What would our customers think? Why are you committed to this course of action? How does that make you feel? There is no judgment in these questions, just honest curiosity that assumes the employee is committed and gives the employee respect. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean, continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu Textile factories launched the Industrial Revolution, but over the years, it's been a bumpy ride. It was desperate times. If you looked at the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics information on a monthly basis, better have your Prozac because it was depressing. I'm Molly Wood, Market Forces and Manufacturing Malaise. Next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us Monday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're spending the hour with NPR reporter Kirk Siegler. He recently visited uh, the UPR studios while he was in Logan working on a story for uh, National Public Radio. 
And uh, we uh, talked about uh, many things, including uh, current politics. We're going to get into a discussion of public lands issues later in the hour. Parallels between Australia and the American West. Kirk Siegler uh, spent some time living in Australia. You are welcome to join this conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I want to uh, <clears throat> follow up on, on a couple of those broad headings that you, that you brought up. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe starting with the uh, politics in Utah and this, this extraordinary political year, we don't know how it's going to shake out, but uh, any poll that shows the Democrat and the, the Republican close, that is headline news in Utah. It's, it's a very red state. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Mormon question is very interesting. So I wonder where do you, as you, I don't know how much reporting you've done on this yet, but what, what are the what am I hearing? Sub-questions, and, and what are you hearing that you're most interested in? I'm hearing, so far anyway, and I'm only one day in, I should uh, provide that caveat, um, but I, I am hearing it kind of wrestles at the heart of, uh, from from folks in the LDS community that I've been talking to, that, you know, it's difficult to fall in line, they're telling me, um, to fall in line with the Republican Party at this moment because of the presumptive nominee's uh, rhetoric when it comes to uh, immigration in particular uh, and some uh, family values that the that the church um, and those in the church community, those in the church community hold very dear and hold very important. So I think it's a tricky issue. What I'm hearing so far is that uh, it is perhaps difficult to find um, supporters of Donald Trump amongst the conservative LDS community. Uh, Now, what they will do is write the bigger question. Uh, Will they vote for Gary Johnson, the libertarian? Will they write in uh, candidates? Will they uh, stay home? The The latter scenario seems kind of hard to believe, right? In the end, will most people stay home in such an important election like this? But it's, at least preliminarily, it seems to me, being here on the ground, that uh, the national headline is is very interesting. Uh, But it may not be that uh, folks in uh, the conservative LDS community are going to switch and vote for Hillary, it may be more that they may vote libertarian or they may write in candidates at the top of the list. I think another unanswered question is how does uh, Donald Trump as the presumptive nominee affect the down ticket races and particularly in a, as you say, deeply conservative red state like this, uh, it will be interesting to watch play out. I want to give a caveat that we try to go in to... um, I think for this story, I may be focusing mostly here in Cache County, Utah. Uh, We try to go into communities like this and talk to as many people as possible Mm -hmm. and try to get uh, the the pulse, I guess you could say, of of any one demographic, for example. But it's not scientific. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in large part, what we're going to focus on when we're here is is stressing that we are just talking to a certain type of uh, party official or situation like here in Cache County where a couple of the uh, GOP members of the executive committee have resigned their posts in protest of Donald Trump. We may focus on that and get deep into some of their views and why they did what they did, but it's by no means uh, scientific and it's by no means an indicator of overall what all Utahns are saying or what all members of the LDS community are saying or what all conservative Republican members of the LDS community are saying. I mean, that's stuff that we're just going to have to wait and see how that plays out. 
And one question is trying to, I could put it in context, because I hear a lot of, read a lot about about this election that, uh, okay, Utah might be an outlier because of the Mormon, um, you know, the population. But it looks like Arizona might be close, you know, mm-hmm. this, this year as well. Of course, mm-hmm. again, large LDS population. Uh, you know, Kansas uh, have some polls, you know, coming in a little closer than, than usual. So I guess the, what you, one thing you want to do is try to parse out the reasons in a specific place. Yeah. And that's a that's tricky to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in Arizona, uh, it appears that uh, that state may be in play uh, more than ever before, but it's always kind of mentioned as being in play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and an interesting race to watch there will certainly be Senator McCain's yeah. reelection bid uh, and how uh, Donald Trump's uh, nomination or expected nomination does or does not factor into these races, but mm-hmm. it will certainly, it's almost becoming cliche, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just going to be just an interesting year. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going to happen. I mean, yeah. one, we think it's going to go one way and then it doesn't. And then, you know, who knows? But I, th- I, mm-hmm. I have heard, uh, so far anyway, in talking to Republicans here in Utah that, um, they may not like what's going on or they may not like the, uh, presumptive nominee, but they do kind of like a little bit that that their state's getting a little attention and issues here are getting attention whereas before as as I mentioned it's it's often just Colorado Nevada swing states yeah. and and now we are we're in a position where we may be kind of uh overhauling or there may be a radical shift or there may not be mm-hmm. in the end who knows but there may be a radical shift in how we view that electoral map yeah one discussion i have with my friends is at least a silver lining for being a deep red state not being a swing state is, is you don't get inundated with the television. It's you know a swing state, you know. Mm-hmm. Friends in swing states, and they say, "Man, I just can't turn on the television. It's just, it's just too much." Yeah, I'm, well, I'm currently living in California, and I was uh, surprised. I'm always surprised when I go to other states and flip on, you know, on reporting trips and flip on the TV. Mm-hmm. In particular, Colorado. Whoa, whoa, whoa yeah, we're just yeah. not getting these in California. Right, although right. leading up to the California primary, we were we're, mm-hmm. we're seeing ads, whereas mm-hmm. we probably hadn't in the past. Yeah. We'll talk a bit about uh, public lands, conflicts over public lands. You've been reporting on this kind of thing for, for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what, what you think the, the trend is. I, we, we did a program recently on the Public Lands Initiative. Representative uh, Bishop, Representative Chasip, Chaffetz have proposed this, and it's hit a buzzsaw with some environmental groups. And there's you know it just seems like the same old arguments back and forth. There was a time uh, just a couple of years ago where at least – the sides were talking about how we need to, you know, be a little uh, better about talking to each other, not past each other. And it's, it's my view that that's sort of faded a bit. Yeah, I. that's a really uh, good question that I don't want to punt and say I can't answer per se, but it's not clear that there is a real solid answer to where that, where, where the movement is going. Um, I, you know, I don't need to tell your listeners that public lands probably in no other state is is the issue of public lands more uh, heated or politicized than than here in Utah. Um, I think that the uh, occupation of the uh, Malheur National Wildlife Refuge um, in Oregon and prior to that in the standoff, the armed standoff in Bunkerville, Nevada, uh, with the Bundy family and many of their followers – I'm not sure that that has helped the cause of those who are uh, on that tend to lean right, who are saying, let's rethink how public lands are managed. Let's let's reopen the discussion. Is it working? Let's have a dialogue. I don't know that the 
shall we say, far right's armed resistance helped their cause in getting that dialogue. On the other hand, I know that there are still very, uh, there are still a lot of issues out there that are permeating that, um, and there are a lot of frustrations uh, out on the land, those who work on the land uh, uh, and those who depend on federal land uh, for their livelihoods. Uh, it's an ages old. It's been around for decades, maybe more than a century. There is a certain disconnect uh, that you feel when you're and that you can see when you're out. Uh, I was recently reporting on public lands issues in southern Utah. Uh, and I mentioned the armed occupation in Oregon, but in Eastern Oregon, many of the locals who actually live in those places uh, are frustrated with what they see as a disconnect. And when you're out there, you're so far away that it's hard not to see that there could be just, you just feel worlds away from the uh, politicians in Washington or some of the land managers in Washington, D.C. that are making some of the decisions that affect the people right there on the ground. So I don't know that there is a real clear um, answer to where these issues are going. I think there are probably setbacks on both sides. I also get the sense that there's a bit of a, uh, I don't know, timeout, if you will, going on right now because of the presidential election, because a lot is in limbo. And we have not seen um, too much from the candidates, and and that's probably expected, uh, talking about Western public lands issues. That is from the national national candidates. I think um, in the Republican primary, Ted Cruz was one of the only ones who came out and said that he supported uh, most federal lands in the West being turned back over to the states, or he supported some sort of model like what Texas has, which is vastly different than uh, Utah uh, or Nevada, where two states that have some of the highest percentage of federal lands. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm sensing <laughs> worry on one side and or excitement on the other side, talking about bear's ears, mm-hmm. just because the, the president's term is coming to an end. And this is, uh, you know, the calculation is that this is something an outgoing president might do mm-hmm. on, on his way out. It's interesting uh, being down there uh, in this last time I was in Utah, I wasn't uh, all the way over to the Four Corners region, but being in the vicinity of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument and some other places, uh, there are still very, I probably don't need to tell your listeners this, that there are still some very deeply uh, bitter feelings mm-hmm. that stem back from the Clinton administration when those national monuments were designated. Um, a feeling that this was a, a, a top-down directive from the federal government with not a lot of local input. Um, I know that's very debatable, uh, and it's hard to sit here in 2016 and quarterback what was going on maybe 20 years ago. But it is interesting that there are still some very um, deeply held views about how land should be managed that, that and some resentment about uh, some lands that were not held open for development of any sort, uh, and then a concern that there may be limits on cattle grazing. You, in, in rural America, I think there's a real shift going on, and there's a real um, frustration that things just aren't like they used to be, or they aren't like they used to be for a certain group of people um, doing a certain type of thing on the land. And this is trickling up into national politics too. I think it might sort of explain why some of uh, might explain some of our polarization or this just deep anxiety or unrest about the state of the country mm-hmm. right now. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, you're listening to a conversation with NPR reporter Kirk Siegler. He recently visited UPR while he was in Logan, working on a story for National Public Radio. 
And uh, we'll continue our discussion of public lands issues. We'll also draw parallels between Australia and the American West later in the program. Uh, Kirk Siegler lived in Australia for a time. You can join this conversation by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. More with Kirk Siegler following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement online at utahhumanities.org. Utah Public Radio congratulates the USU campus in Brigham City for receiving certification for sustainable building. The recently opened Brigham City Academic Building achieved LEED certification for implementing practical and measurable strategies, including sustainable site development, water savings, energy efficiency, material selection, and indoor environmental quality. Kudos from Utah Public Radio. Aaron Copeland was from Brooklyn, a city slicker who captured and to a certain degree created what we think of as the sound of the old American West. We'll hear from his cowboy ballet, Billy the Kid, Corrado Rivares conducting the Artosphere Festival Orchestra on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are in conversation with NPR reporter Kirk Siegler. You can join this conversation, if you'd like, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. You interviewed Cliven Bundy. I did. I believe that that's, I don't know... Uh, my impression was he wasn't giving a whole lot of, you know, that many interviews. This was uh, a few months after the standoff, and I had, I don't know that he had, had declined too many interviews, but he mm. immediately after he was captured on tape making uh, uh, what appeared to be racist remarks, mm. uh, many of the national figures that had supported him backed away, uh, and talk show figures in particular, I think. But he, uh, I did interview him, and it was right around the time that there had been a... Um, shooting spree in Las Vegas targeting what at the time the authorities said the couple that had started the shooting spree uh, had anti-government leanings and they had spent time out on the Bundy Ranch during that standoff in 2014 over cattle grazing. And so that was the impetus behind going out there. Um, I basically just showed up uh, and interviewed him. He was flanked by uh, two uh, guards who... It was hard to say if they were armed or if they were armed. I don't know. I didn't know if they were armed or not. And he, here he was, the leader of the uh, anti-federal lands movement, if you could call it that, or I know those in the movement call it something different. Uh, here was the leader of the movement, just you know, sitting in his ranch house on a 105 degree day in June in southern Nevada, and uh, was willing to talk quite openly about his views of the government. And at that time, remember, the government had not gone after him, or at least it had appeared that the government wasn't going after him. And many of the critics at the time said that that inaction uh, uh, helped embolden the cause of his sons to take over the wildlife refuge in, in Oregon. So it was definitely one of the more interesting interviews I've done in my career. Um, and I sat right there on his living room floor and he 
told me uh, all about his family history and why he believed uh, his uh, Mormon ideology framed some of his decisions about land management and um, why he believed that the states have the authority of these federal lands out there. I think there are many people who would tell you otherwise, but this was his view. But now, as we know, he's awaiting trial. He's being held, and many of his sons are, and many of the top leaders of the movement. Um, But it's not clear whether that movement has been suppressed or not. So Mm -hmm. I think that's what we're still watching. One of the members of the movement, of course, uh, died. And so that's, you know, that's makes it even more high stakes. Uh, You mentioned uh, his Mormon beliefs in the Malheur Standoff. The LDS Church uh, felt compelled to issue a press release saying, clarifying, you know, clarifying that, yeah. the way you know this is not this is not come from our scripture. Um, but it is a it is a if I could say it is a very tight knit group of ranchers, most but mostly ranchers who do share uh, a certain view and who do share who are mostly LDS, uh, and some of them are related to one another in a very small corner of the West, uh, parts of southwestern Utah, uh, northern Arizona, and southern Nevada. Um, Now, many of their followers have come from all different stripes and all over the country, but at its core, it is a very small uh, movement of, I guess, fringe ranchers and many, many other ranchers uh, will tell you and have told me that they uh, they may appreciate some of the issues that were raised and some of their frustrations by uh, uh, some of these protesters or armed protesters, but they in no way support what the way that, that, that they went about staging these potentially very dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, as we were talking there, I was thinking about, you did a, uh, you did a, uh, interview uh, someone who's building survivalist homes right and and I, I and I don't want to lump the ranchers here in Clive and Bunny in with survivalists there you know there different, are some parallels but there are here, some yeah. parallels yeah. and it's 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 kind of a western type you know and I don't want to minimize them by using that word but they you know you you meet people are you know rugged individualists off the grid you know survivalist um, and then there's kind of some similar attitudes among some of the ranchers that we, you know. This may be a diversion, though, but the tough issue, uh, in particular in the West, about that description that you've described is mm-hmm. that, uh, in, yes, they are one way, but many people in the West are quite dependent on the federal government mm-hmm. for any number of things. So that's the conflict or that's the tension. Mm-hmm. And in some corners, that's sometimes viewed by some as uh, a little bit hypocritical. Um, there are some parallels, I think, to what you were, what I was talking about with the sort of unrest or the anxiety that we're trying to get at as reporters and understand what's going on, in particular in this presidential election, with what you say, these uh, off-grid survivalist properties. Now, the people as far as I can tell, this was a story about people who are moving out or looking to move out to uh, this corner of the, uh, it's called the Inland Northwest. So Northern Idaho, Western Montana, um, where it's very rural, it's very isolated, but there's also still a pretty plentiful water, unlike the Southwestern United States. Um, and it's remote. So there are, it, it appears that there are a myriad of different reasons people are trying to move there. But in the end, some of them share the common uh, philosophy as having the financial means to be able to move to these places. And I don't know that they're just... Uh, most of the people, as far as I could tell, that were interested in moving to these places were not from the West, uh, or if they were, they were from cities. Um, 
So it was one of the more interesting stories I've reported for a while. Um, and going out into see some of these properties involved, uh, you know, a snowcat trip um, out into places that were off grid. Uh, so for sure, there are some parallels, I think, with some of the unrest and the anxiety that's being felt uh, in rural places in the West in particular to those, uh, this, this idea that, that people need this, I think it was told to me, by uh, the, the the husband of the realtor who I profiled, who he also helps her by building uh, secret rooms, bunkers in ple- people's houses, weapons caches. As he told it to me, it was very telling that people just sort of want this place to go, to be able to go if there's uh, concerns about terrorism or if there's concerns about government, in their view, becoming tyrannical or if that they're uh, concern about climate change, something environmental like that. So it was certainly one of the more interesting stories I've reported recently. Are there stereotypes that you have to dispel? I mean, you growing up in the West, reporting on the West, um, are, are there... Oh, we face this in every, you know, every mistaken day. ideas about the West. Oh, the I, I feel like the West is probably uh, one of the most mistaken regions of the country uh, in terms of stereotypes, and in part that comes from our sort of national persona or ideolo- uh, ideological view that we head west, rugged out here. Uh, we certainly are. The Westerners tend to be probably more independent-minded than than in many other parts of the country, and I think that's why we've seen the region shift a little bit politically. Um, and and some of these stereotypes have played out for generations in in Hollywood movies, right, in films. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're out here on the ground, I think there's one of the things that is really striking lately is that the West is becoming more and more urbanized, mm-hmm. and and it's not this place that many Americans may think of as being the kind of rugged cowboy out there on the land. Uh, you know, we're dealing with many of the issues here in the West that are being dealt with across the country. Um, growing pains, uh, tech booms, uh, rising cost of living in places like Salt Lake City, Denver, that used to be rather affordable, uh, becoming unaffordable. Um there are issues about immigration. There are issues about water, whether there's going to be enough water for this booming region that everybody wants to go to. Everybody wants to move west now or they want to move to certain western cities from other parts of the country. Uh, so there's a lot going on out here that I think is often um, perhaps maybe not understood by the national uh, uh, politicians and others who who think of the West in a certain way, but that's, of course, our job to sort of uh, parse that mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. tell that to and explain some of the issues uh, to a national audience mm-hmm. out here. And that's what we're trying to do. Right. It occurs to me, uh, one complaint that uh, Westerners, uh, speak for Utah, Utahns, have had, I grew up in, uh, in rural Utah, out in the Uinta Basin, complaining about outsiders coming in, wanting to have this nice lifestyle, but then uh, immediately upon moving to rural Utah, wanting to change it. And uh, the stereotype in rural Utah was it's they're all Californians. I'm, I'm sure they weren't all Californians. But, uh, but <laughs> now you're living in – you grew up in the interior west. Now you're living in California. Oh, if, I wonder if you sense any of this. or Yeah, if I could share one aside, it's interesting that it, it is something in the Intermountain West that there is sort of like the rush to blame the Californians moving in. I mean, California did get – hugely crowd you know hugely 
population exploded and people kind of have been out migrating from California for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. Although now California uh, has gotten its budget situation squared back in the other direction. And now much of the state is booming despite its historic drought. But uh, growing up in uh, Western Montana, uh, it was a similar, you know, things are changing. A lot of people are moving to the Intermountain West and it's the Californians. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was a think tank up there, I believe through the University of Montana, who dispelled that pretty recently and saying, actually, it's people from Washington who are moving to Montana. They are the bulk of the people who are moving to Montana in terms of from other states. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a you know, that's what makes the West interesting. I hate to say just say it's interesting, but you do have a lot of different people moving into places that, uh, whereas in one point, uh, of course, it was the Native Americans who lived here. Then we had outsiders coming in to rural areas for a number of different reasons. Homesteaders, uh, come, many people, immigrants came to work uh, for timber jobs, for mining jobs. So the West has always had different people coming in. Um, and we're seeing that play out right now, I think, in terms of as the West's, the rural West's economy changes and shifts, it's not always pretty, the politics, right? And, and there are certainly some counties that are flourishing still that are natural resource dependent, but there are many other counties in the West, and sometimes they're side by side, uh, that are uh, were once heavily dependent on natural resources and are no longer able to develop those or they're just not there or there's not a market for them. And there's a lot of tension uh, and, and there's a lot of uh, uh, frustrations, I guess, that that can't happen. But at the same time, some people are moving in and making uh, ma- making money and making uh, and developing recreation economies uh, and tourism. But there's a real shift going on. And I think it's probably always been going on in one form or another around the rural West in particular as more people – in some of those rural areas, right, um, mm-hmm. that move to the cities. Um, yeah. And the rural areas in much of the – in a lot of the rural west, you do see some very impoverished places and some very struggling economies. So yeah. I think a lot of it does come back to the economy. Yeah. And I'm remembering I, – I think I saw this – some, you know, <clears throat> could be a false memory or heard of it <clears> – <throat> billboards in Oregon <clears throat> saying, you know, love to have you visit. Don't Don't move here, you know. <laughs> If it's if it's not true, I'd, I'd, kind of the attitude you get sometimes uh, well, back in the day, and this was back in the day. Oregon was a good example. Eastern Oregon. I mean, that is some very very. We were talking about how isolated, remote, and and then inherently tight knit some of these communities mm-hmm. are in the rural West. But I I, I found going back and forth uh, covering the uh, wildlife refuge occupation and then standoff in Oregon, you had some counties there that were kind of as I mentioned, side by side, one county uh, in Bend, Oregon, uh, the economy has exploded with uh, that was once a natural resources dependent region. It's it's exploded as a result of seniors, uh, seniors, retirees wanting to move to these places, the ski resorts, the natural resources economy, and just people wanting to live in these types of places where they could also telecommute. And then uh, neighboring Harney County over in eastern Oregon, where the wildlife refuge standoff occurred, was an area that had seen its timber mill close, uh, had seen its uh, ran- the amount of public land available for grazing shrink. Um, and there's, you know, a fairly robust tourist industry there as a result of 
bird watchers mostly at the refuge, but it's pretty isolated and cut off. But it did, it sort of exemplified, I think it was a great case study. I hate to sound academic, but it was sort of a case study of what's going on around the West as mm-hmm. many rural communities struggle with which direction they're going to go and uh, struggle with their once dependence or current dependence on federal dollars, federal jobs, federal land management agencies, in some cases, federal subsidies coming in to support these places and this people there wanting to be more independent and not so dependent on the federal government. But it represented a sort of different, a case study perhaps of a different directions that Western communities are taking. And it was playing out right there in Eastern Oregon mm-hmm. uh, before the, the, you know, the national and at times international spotlight. It was a very yeah. difficult story to sort of explain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but as, as you say, it's playing out across the West. Finally, I promised myself I'd ask you about this, come back to this. So we'll do this as the last thing. You you lived a bit in Australia. And I, I have a, a, a view, a, I don't know, that, that maybe there are some parallels between Australian culture and American culture, especially Western U.S. Maybe sure. you could dispel those or confirm well, those. Well, it's very similar. Um, I live there, uh, you know, I just did kind of a job. I just, after college, I... Um, should we say flourished in the service sector? <laughs> so it was actually the only time I, I've done a number of uh, service jobs in restaurants and and cafes and stuff, but it's the only time I'd ever waited tables, um, which I'm fortunate to say I hopefully won't have to do again. But you know the reality is, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there are a lot of similarities, and actually, interestingly, I go back there uh, quite a bit now because my brother has moved there. Um, And it's an interesting place to fly to, in particular from the West because, and the West Coast of the United States, because you fly 15 hours or more, and you expect you should be landing somewhere that's just totally exotic, and then you get there, and it sort of seems like a a sort of British version of California in some ways. Mm. Um, And and it is very similar. Uh, The last time the second to last time I went there, I landed in Sydney and smelled that smell of wildfires. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very eerie and, you know, it, you know how smells remind you of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Western U.S. in particular right now is looking to Australia quite a bit when it comes to drought and water management and how to manage your way through a drought, uh, how, the, uh, how Australia has dealt with bushfires and tried to... Pr- their communities. Um, there are a lot of parallels, and it's actually quite similar, um, I think. And, you know, um, Australians who are listening to this may agree with me or disagree. You know, there are obviously a lot of differences as well, but there is also a f- kind of frontier attitude in Australia, similar to what you see in the West. So there are some interesting parallels. I'm uh, With no success so far, have I convinced my editors that we ought to do a series on this <laughs> to get me over there more often, but who knows? <laughs> at, least, at least look at the wildfires, right, and the parallels, <laughs> right. and maybe something, yeah. Right. Oh, we've been talking with Kirk Siegler, NPR reporter, uh, who's uh, visiting UPR uh, studios and uh, on assignment uh, reporting in in Utah, northern Utah. Thank you so much. Glad to do it, and thank you for having me. Our thanks to NPR reporter Kirk Siegler. He uh, joined us, as you heard there, in our studios while he was on assignment for National Public Radio uh, in Logan. You can hear his reports, of course, on uh, NPR. We hope you join us tomorrow for the program. Science fiction novelist, blogger, technology activist Cory Doctorow joins us. In a recent column, Doctorow says that all the data collected in giant databases today will breach someday, and when it does, it will ruin people's lives. 
They will have their houses stolen from under them by identity thieves who forge their deeds. This is already happening. They will end up with criminal records because identity thieves will use their personal information to commit crimes. This is already happening. They will have their devices compromised using passwords and personal data that leaked from old accounts. And the hackers will spy on them through their baby monitors, cars, set-top boxes, and medical implants. This is already happening, says Cory Doctorow. Cory Doctorow is a co-editor of a popular web blog, uh, Boing Boing, contributor to The Guardian, Publishers Weekly, Wired, many other newspapers, magazines, websites. He's a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's the author of numerous novels, including Little Brother, Homeland, and Walkaway. Cory Doctorow joins us tomorrow to talk about technology, privacy, and intellectual property. We hope you'll be with us. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. And Logan presents Puccini's trilogy, Il Tritico, featuring three one-act operas starring Michael Ballam. Details at utahfestival.org. We have an activity here called Sorting People. When you talk about race... What do I look like to you? Asian. Native American. Everybody says they know it when they see it. White. Hispanic. But they come up with complete confusion uh, um, if they're asked to define it. Race is just like... I don't know. I'm not sure. Race. What really can you say about it? On the next Radio Lab. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Living on Earth, rare turtles find a home in the suburbs. Biologists assume that people are always the problem, and yet here, they're looking out for the turtles, they're looking out for the nests. The turtles are nesting in people's front yards. I'm Steve Kerwood, and the nesting turtles of Henry David Thoreau's hometown, next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, do boycotts work? So there are a variety of empirical papers that point out that the economic impact of boycotts is limited. The evidence against and for boycotts, that's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Up next is the TED Radio Hour. The time now is 10 o'clock.